Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Attention all personnel, please clear the launching area. Fire, fire. Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. That looks really good. Yes, it does. It's dead on. Okay, keep the chatter down in this room. Are you ready to begin? Yes, I'm all set, Welcome to the first edition of Space Boffins for the 2020s, the decade that NASA promises to return astronauts to the moon. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists and we're back recording in our second home, the British Interplanetary Society in London. And we are sat inside the council Room, which is right at the top of a, it feels like a, it's a sort of Victorian terrace, I think. But inside this council room, we, I know we've been here before, but it is rather magnificent. It's got a whole wall full of very retro, rather beautiful, original space drawings and uh, we'll put some pictures of these up on the the website and on Twitter because they are magnificent. Uh, Coming up, Sue's interview with outspoken shuttle astronaut Mike Mullane. Uh, We'll also be hearing about ESA's new man-machine interface and we'll be looking ahead to 2020 in space. Um, Our guest is astronomy author and writer Colin Stewart. Now we're going to talk about 2020 a little later on. What's the big thing you're looking forward to in space in 2020? Well, so we might just find Planet Nine, which is this idea of a, an extra planet beyond Neptune. Um, and having spoken to Mike Brown, who's one of the people searching for it reasonably recently, it could be coming this year, potentially. Um, the other amazing thing is the, is the launch of Solar Orbiter, uh, the European Space Agency probe, which will then be in cahoots with the Parker Solar Probe, which has already been launched, uh, because that together they will really start to un- unveil some of the sun's secrets. Yeah, we've, we've heard a lot about that on the podcast in the, the last couple of months. And everyone's very... So this is going to take the closest... I mean, there's a, everyone wants the first, the biggest, the best. But it's going to take the closest ever pictures of the sun. And this has a particular interest for Colin, for you, of course, because your latest book is called The Rebel Star, which is all about the sun. Yeah, so I spent the last 18 months or so researching and, and really, really digging into the sun. And so we are at it sea change in our understanding because the two of them together you know parker doesn't have cameras it's so close to the sun that it just can't have cameras whereas solar orbiter can because it's just that little bit further out so as a team um they're a bit of a dream team together when it comes and yeah i can't wait for the launch of february nose gear touchdown having fired the imagination of a generation a ship like no other its place in history secured the space shuttle pulls into port for the last time, its voyage at an end. It's hard to believe that it's been nine years since the space shuttle retired. In fact, next year, it will be 30 years since the first flight, STS-1. Now, the astronauts recruited in 1978 to fly the shuttle were very different to previous groups. They included the first American women, the first minorities, and about a third of the group were civilians. One of those recruits was Mike Mullane, an engineer, former colonel in the United States Air Force. He flew three times in the shuttle as a mission specialist. 
And while recording interviews for our 10-part Audible series, The Space Race, which is our co-production with B7 Media, of course, I interviewed Mike at his home in New Mexico about the first shuttle astronaut intake. Well, it was uh, certainly a lot of camaraderie and bonding that was going on in those years as we trained. Personally, I, you know, having come from an all-male environment, uh, my entire life I'd worked in all-male environments. I went to, well, uh, been Catholic schools for 12 years, and, you know, it was pretty segregated there when it came to male and female interaction. Uh, went to West Point, all-male, went to the Air Force flying community, all-male. So first time I had to work uh, with women was working with Sally Ride and Judy Resnick and these uh, legends of uh, of NASA. That was a little bit, uh, it had a while before I adjusted to that. What was the difficulty? Was it just purely that you weren't used to women at that level that you were working at? Or? Well, I think what it was is since I had never my whole life, and, and people can't understand this unless they, they live the life I live, this all-male environment, particularly with 12 years of Catholic schools. I mean, that's a very, uh, you come out of Catholic schools, women, you learn that women only have a couple functions in life. They can be dental hygienists and secretaries, and the the prime role of, of a woman is to be a mother and a stay-at-home, stay-at-home wife. That was what was hammered into us over all those years. And so it was very unusual to now uh, find myself working with women who were not dental hygienists or, or secretaries or any of that. They were, they were physicists and they were electrical engineers with much greater education than I do. I had a master's degree. They, they, they were PhDs and had done postdoctoral research. So they were very, uh, you know, far more educated than I was. And it, it took a while. I, I think I was suspect. I think most of the military people were suspect initially as to how these folks were going to adapt to a, a world that was so different. It was, to us, it was kind of the same world, flying high-performance vehicles. Uh, and for them, it was totally different. And we were wondering, I think, deep down, each of us were, how are they going to adjust to this? And they did a marvelous job. didn't take long to learn that these people brought a lot, a lot to the table. Uh, they were very, very smart and um, certainly as skilled, in the, they were all in the mission specialist role, role. So I can tell you right now, they were as skilled as I was at operating the robot arm and, and doing these experiments and, and such, such things as that. So uh, we bonded and it became a, a very tight bond, particularly when you're assigned to a crew. I was, I was assigned on my first mission, I was assigned with a crew that included Judy Resnick. Uh, she was the second American woman to fly in space. And... Um, and I loved working with her. She, you know, was just a, a great group of people. Uh, another postdoc on my crew was Steve Hawley, who was clearly we were everybody rapidly learned he was the smartest guy on the planet. I mean, he was a computer. He was data from Star Trek. He just happened to be on loan to NASA. That's what he was. He was a brilliant, brilliant man. Apart from intelligence, was there something else that you all all shared, character-wise? Uh, well, we all shared a love of space. <laughs> Nobody would be there if they didn't want to fly in space. So that was the that was the glue that we all all shared is that we wanted to fly in space. We wanted to be astronauts. So uh, that was a a common link. And across all the differences that were there in that office, we all craved to uh, get aboard that vehicle. Uh, that was you know it was a sense of of competition. You know, we all all wanted to get up there. We all wanted to be first, knowing that you know you can't have everybody first. Uh, so that's what we lived and breathed was to, um, to be flying a rocket. As I tell people, astronauts did not go to work. We went and lived and lived a dream. That was our dream to fly in space. So no astronaut thought, oh, this is work. No, this is living a dream to be uh, trained and fly into space. 
For you, what was your most memorable flight? Well, the most memorable moment in my astronaut career was on my second mission. Not all shuttles fly into the same orbit. Not all missions go into the same orbit. And it's a little bit physics here, but they vary in tilt to the equator. Uh, my first mission was only tilted to the equator 28 degrees, which means it only goes over that part of the Earth between 28 degrees north and 28 degrees south latitude. Well, that only includes the very southern part of Florida and a tiny piece of t- southern Texas. So I didn't get to see my hometown um, here in Albuquerque, where I grew up, uh, on, on that mission. On my second mission, the tilt was 57 degrees to the equator, so we went all over the entire United States. And I was able to see my hometown of Albuquerque for the first time on that mission. That was a very significant moment for me because I, I grew up, I was a child of the space race. I was 12 years old when Sputnik was launched, and I knew right away I wanted to be an astronaut. And there was a vast desert right outside my door here in Albuquerque, southwest America, and a lot of desert. And right outside the door, I mean, I started building homemade rockets. Uh, these things are pipe bombs, really, with fins, but, you know, I called them homemade rockets and would take them out in the desert and launch these things with a capsule recovery system. My capsule was a coffee can. Nose cone was a rolled-up piece of acetate plastic pointed scotch tape into a pointy shape. Uh, and the plastic that I had for a parachute was the, was the plastic to cover the clothes that come back from the dry cleaners. So low-budget space program. But I would go out here. I was, I was all in. Unlike many, many people, I, was, I lived and breathed everything about rocketry, uh, satellites, uh, astronomy, anything that flew. I built airplanes. I built gliders, uh, launched many, many rockets. So now here I'm in space on my second mission looking down as an astronaut on this exact same place on the planet where I had uh, conducted all my early experiments and had this passion for space uh, develop. So that end-to-end connection of a life dream come true was very emotional for me. A lot of people on the space station have sort of complained, not complained, but they, 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 they sort of say, it's, you, you know, you have very little time to yourself, you're just doing mm-hmm. your experiments. Was it like that on the shuttle? Was your day-to-day life on the shuttle very regimented? Was every hour accounted for? How, how was it? Well, every hour is scheduled, but in our particular case, all three of my missions were what they called deployable missions. We took up satellites and deployed them. And 99% then of the work you're going to do is associated with this deploying the satellite. And they all typically want to be deployed early in a mission. So fortunately for me on these missions, we for the first two or three days, you're working and getting these satellites out. And then you have maybe two or three days before you reenter where you might there might be some minor experiment in the cockpit you might have some to do with and then another experiment which you all love was take just taking photos of the earth these uh, uh various scientists would give us specific areas they wanted us to take take photos and of course you know that sitting there at a window and taking photos of the earth is and eating peanut m&ms <laughs> not get any better than that uh so i had a lot of a lot of time to be at the windows and looking out the uh looking out the windows we didn't have a space module or anything that had 24 7 operations with uh experiments and the other thing about the deployable missions the payload weights are so heavy that you don't have weight to add in a bunch of experiments so i had a lot of a lot of time to look out the window did you get used to the the food, the effects it had on your body, on your face? So often people say they get quite puffy. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, let's talk physiology. There's three three major physiological events that occur very quickly when you get in a low Earth orbit. 
one of which is about half the astronauts end up get sick and vomiting. They call it space sickness, but it has nothing to do with Earth motion sickness. It's not correlated. If you get seasick, car sick, plane sick here on Earth, it will not predict whether you get sick in space. You may, you may not. I'm a classic example. I have been sick in the back of fighter jets countless times, but up in space, I didn't get sick at all. Then we've had, we had test pilots aboard some of my flights who you know, were sick for a couple of days, and they had never been sick on Earth, so they can't figure out what causes that. But that's one thing, uh, this space sickness, which fortunately I do- dodged that bullet. But the other bullet you can't dodge. One is uh, a lengthening of your spine, and this is due to that... Uh, and that fluid shift, uh, it causes the discs between your vertebrae to absorb water and, and fluids because now it's all even through your body. It's not, mig- it's not trapped in the lower part of your body by gravity. So that swelling of those discs push your vertebrae apart, and it, and it makes you taller. I was an inch and a half taller in space than I am here. problem with that is it gives you a severe lower back ache because the muscles of the lower back don't accommodate for that growth in the spine quickly, and it, and it really bothers you with a ba- very bad backache. And then the fluid shift, the other third effect, is it does make your face puffy, gives you a mild headache uh, with this migration of fluid into the upper part of your body. So those are the, the three physiological effects. Did it affect your taste of smell or taste or anything like that for, yes. for the food? I know the food was pretty bland. bland. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, the food, uh, uh, your sense of taste is affected because it's sort of like having a cold. Uh, having this fluid in your your head, you're, you know, you just have more fluid in your head. So your t- sense of taste is muted a little bit. And so they added, uh, after early flights, when they learned this, they started adding some spicy stuff that you could squeeze onto your, you know, taco sauce or something onto something to give it give it some spicy uh, flavor. To be honest, though, I, food wasn't that important for me because I was flying on very short missions. The longest mission was six days. So M&M's, butter cookies, <laughs> puddings, <laughs> yeah, that was great. The thing about weightlessness, by the way, is that everything associated with habitability, you know, everything we do here on Earth, eat, sleep, use the toilet, that type of stuff, is much more difficult and time-consuming in space. Uh, toilet operations, I mean, here on Earth, you know, may take you five minutes or something or one minute, uh, whatever. Uh, and up there, you know, you can easily quadruple that time uh, with the preparations for the toilet and the use of it and the cleanup afterwards. So that's a big pain, frankly. Uh, Preparing food um, is all, you know, you have things, different containers all attached to the wall, and then you forget where you attached them by Velcro, and so you're looking around for those, so you waste a lot of time doing that. So there were times that you would really love, I think, as an astronaut to have times and say, I want to be in a gravity vector now. I'm going to use a toilet. I want gravity. I'm going to prepare a meal. I want gravity. You know, all those habitability type of things. But the rest of the time, just floating around is wonderful. You know, it's absolutely wonderful. Mike Mullane, if you've not read his brilliant book, Riding Rockets, The Outrageous Tales of a Space Shuttle Astronaut, then order it now. He's frank, as you can tell, honest and very, very funny. You can also hear him be quite outspoken on the privatisation of space and the demise of the shuttle in the Space Race series available on Audible. If I want to go to the toilet, I want gravity. I want to gravity yeah, I better. Definitely want gravity. <laughs> definitely want gravity. Um, I, mean, I love his honesty. Um, I love his descriptions as well of, of what it was what it was like. It is a point, though, isn't it, Colin, about gravity with 
with eating, with with sleeping, and and with going to the toilet. And I suppose with future long duration missions, that's something we maybe start thinking about some sort of artificial gravity. It's a question I get a lot. So I give a talk both to to adult groups, but also to school groups about the future of human missions to Mars mostly to schools to try and get the kids excited about these missions. And I spent a lot of time talking about the toilet um, <laughs> because it, it, they're going to be using it several times a day. They deserve to be told what it's like. The question often comes back, can we not have the 2001 rotating well, artificial I, gravity? I was going to say, we're in a room. We've got some of these, these images up here on the wall of these original concepts for big rotating space stations. But it's just not as, it's just not as easy to, to solve as it is to write it down in a, in a science fiction book. That's the issue. I mean, uh, it, would take a, it would make a huge difference. I mean, astronauts have to exercise two to four hours a day, six days a week, so that when they get somewhere or when they come home from the space station, that their muscles and their bones aren't shot. So you could really change their entire schedule if you could, as he said, add gravity. It would make everything a lot easier from sleeping to eating to... Well, yeah, going to the toilet. Could you could you have a, a, a spacecraft with an arm sticking out and have the toilet effectively at the end of the arm, so it's sort of spinning at the end of the arm? Maybe it's a lot of effort to go to just <laughs> just for the toilet solution. Uh, I mean, you could, but the, I don't think it's too bad the toilet situation. They've it's, they've come a long way now since. I mean, my favorite space artifact I've ever come across was uh, it's in the Smithsonian collection in in Washington. It's just a plastic bag, but it's from the Apollo era, and it has a label on it, and the label says defecation collection device. We, I saw that, actually, a few months ago in Washington. <laughs> <laughs> Which is, you know, a scientist for poo bag. But I just love that phrase, defecation collection device. But, yeah, they used to have to go in a bag. At least now they have a... And they left a, most of those bags on the surface of the moon. There are 96 bags yeah. on the moon, full of, uh, of yeah. And now wouldn't you, you want to know if those have got live bacteria in them still well this is the amazing thing they could be an incredible science experiment they've been there for 50 years they there is no atmosphere they are exposed to the radiation from the sun so even if there's not live bacteria there now studying those samples to see how they've changed over 50 years you know could give you a really valuable result for the effect of radiation on on biological material well, I think that's one of the things that they would eventually like to do when NASA go back to the moon is to actually collect some of those samples back. Now, you've written several, you know, a couple of books that, that deal with the practicalities of astronauts and living in space. You wrote the book about Tim Peake, didn't you? Or So You Want to Be... Was it So You Want to Be an Astronaut? No, which one? I know you wrote one that had an astronaut in the title. <laughs> yeah, it's, Tim, it's Tim's book. It's yeah. that uh, astronaut selection test book. That's it, that's it. But uh, you wrote it, though, didn't you? Yeah, we wrote it together. He asked me. You to wrote it. He asked, <laughs> he asked me to. No, he was definitely involved. It wasn't a. a Did he a, just read it? <laughs> it wasn't a classic ghost-written thing. I mean, he, and he gave me credit, which was nice on the, you know, on the inside. It's not that sort of someone wrote it, but. Yeah, we know we liked him. We do like him a lot. You've also written the How to Live in Space, which I must admit, I think it's a, it's like a, a, a work of art. It's it's such a beautiful looking book. In terms of doing your research for that, what was the thing that did make you go, well, do you know what? I didn't know that, or this is my favourite bit. Weirdly, it kind of boils down to the toilet stuff again. So <laughs> I, I, I think my, well, no, my, the thing I didn't realise was there was a conversation that happened on Apollo 10, uh, which was the last practice run before Apollo 11, 
there was a basically a stray piece of. Uh, we featured Poo. it. We featured it in Space Buffins. We'll have to dig out the. Yeah. Uh, we'll dig out the clip. So yeah. It's amazing that they had this full-on conversation about it. So it's obviously something didn't quite make it into the bag, <laughs> and then between um, Tom Stafford and John Young and Gene Cernan, they had a full-on you know conversation about whose it was, and there was interrogation. It's not mine. <laughs> mine was stickier than that. I mean, it was a full-on conversation, and I didn't realize that. Again, it's nice to talk to. When you talk about the practicalities of space, we often think of it as quite glamorous. And I think it's only glamorous when you get back. <laughs> yeah, but this, this astronaut idea of being the best of us, and, and you kind of forget that they have to crap in a bag, and well, at least these days they have a toilet. But even then they have a, a hose with a funnel, and it has to suck up their wee. And it's all a bit grim when you think about it. So It's like the worst ever camping trip, I think. It is that kind of thing. I mean, even the sleeping of the, the, the fact that some astronauts choose to... They have a sleeping bag. And you can strap it to any wall you want, in theory. It can be the ceiling, the floor, or the walls. But then some astronauts choose not to. It's their personal choice not to attach it to a wall and just sort of float in their cabin in a sleeping bag with their arm. I mean, I would like, you'd whack into something and you'd wake yourself up, but apparently that's, some of them choose to do it that way. Well, that Mike Mullane interview was made for our Audible series. And in fact, we've had a Bit of a flurry, haven't we, of um, radio programmes recently. I, we featured something on the So Sisters uh, in the last podcast. And that radio programme, Hey Sisters, So Sisters, which is all about the seamstresses that were involved in the space industry from the Apollo suit through shuttle, Skylab to present day. That's now up on the BBC website and on BBC Sound. So do have a, a search, Hey Sisters, So Sisters, and um, have a listen. Hopefully you'll enjoy it. Also on the BBC website and BBC Sounds, uh, our new essay series for Radio 3 with uh, Stuart Clark, uh, Beneath the Night Sky. And also, I'm quite excited about this. Now, I haven't been on Radio 4 for a very long time. I mean, a very long time. I got sidelined quite a long time ago. But I was back <laughs> at Christmas. Um, so there's a fantastic... You're not bitter, are you? No, there's a fantastic <laughs> series, drama series, uh, Dan Dare, redone by uh, B7. It's been on Radio 4 Extra over Christmas time. And there's a documentary that goes with it, also on Radio 4 Extra, which I made. Yay, well done. Yeah. And I think we ought to, we do have American listeners. We ought no, to Say of... well done again with, with oh, feeling. Oh, sorry, OK. That's great, Rick. Well done. <laughs> she says, I think my cheeks are hurting from that false smile. Uh, we better explain, because we do have American listeners that um, who Dan Dare is. Yeah, so it, it was a big thing. So from the uh, Eagle it was a Annual, British, com- a British, British com- comic. British Eagle comics in the 1950s onwards. I'll keep prompting onwards. you until you get it right. Yeah. <laughs> it's British Eagle <laughs> comics from the 1950s. Dan Dare, British spaceman, and has all these space adventures. They've reimagined it. For, for the now, uh, and it's, it's really good. Very high production values, audio drama, it's lovely. This is Space Boffins. We're in partnership with The Naked Scientists. Do get in touch with us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram and share your thoughts on the podcast. As long as they're positive thoughts. Yeah, we always say that, yeah. Yeah. Uh, I thought about maybe we should have some sort of... Lo- I wrote down loyalty scheme. It was one of those ideas I had last night. I was thinking, well, maybe we should have like a card where you, you know, every time you listen to the it's, podcast, you get like a, like a point or something. Um, OK, the uh, jingle competition, the competition that absolutely no one cares about. <laughs> OK, so the clever bit is that the music is synced with the Sputnik beeps. Yeah. 
Notice that. Uh, There's an extract from Virgin Galactic's first space flight. There's the International Space Station docking. Um, There's some Central Office of Information archive about Jodrell Bank, uh, the big radio telescope in the north of England. Uh, That's recorded in the 1950s. I love that. That's the Are You Ready to Begin? All set here, that bit. The rude-sounding bit, and this comes back to your um, Apollo 10 mission. It's actually from Apollo 17. It's the same culprit. Gene Cernan, last man on the moon. <laughs> so that whole conversation during Apollo 10 about the loose poo in the in the capsule, the rude sounding bit in our jingle is Gene Cernan landing on the moon during Apollo 17. And here's the original extract. Okay, Gordon, we're out of 11,000 at 9. Okay, stand by for pitch over. Oh, are we coming in? Oh, baby. I'll give it to you. the double entendre on there. I just love the exuberance of that. I don't know, Gene Cernan was just such a remarkable man. It makes me wonder whether it was him with Apollo 10, because it's still a bit of a mystery whose it is, and now, now I'm sort of swinging towards, <laughs> towards Gene Cernan. I'll tell you what, if I could find it, we'll play it right at the end of the podcast. Uh, one thing, though, I, I, it's funny, I've spent years, we've been making the podcast now since 2011, so that's, this is our ninth year of making the, the, the podcast. And um, I've always hated the fact that the jingle included for the last sort of five years me going, oh, wow, it's going up so slowly because I was watching the Orion launch. And yet, funnily enough, on Twitter the other day, somebody was watching a launch and they, they somebody I follow and they said, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it's going up so slowly. And I thought, OK, well, maybe we should reinstate Bring it. <laughs> Bring it oh, back. Oh, then we could do another jingle competition. Oh, no. <laughs> All right. Maybe, maybe not. Maybe not. Before we hear some more from our guest, Colin Stewart, uh, later this year, a control panel will be installed on the International Space Station. It's for cosmonauts to operate the new 11-metre European built robotic arm from the outside of the space station. It's also known as the external man-machine interface. (laughs) Lovely. It's a surprisingly retro-looking bit of kit, though, and deliberately so, as it turns out, and it will be part of Russia's new science laboratory. The engineering model of this control panel is at ESA's technical facility, ESTEC, in the Netherlands, uh, which is where I saw this unusual piece of equipment for myself. My name is Philippe Schoonians. I work in European Space Agency. My official title is Team Leader for Robotics and Future Projects. Now, in front of mm. us is a white, open, almost briefcase-style mm. Box, but this has lots of silver switches, quite old fashioned mm. switches actually, almost something out of the 1960s, mm. but with roll, pitch, elbow, scroll, and then the appropriate translation in Russia. So, what do you call this piece of kit? We call it the EVA man machine interface for the European robotic arm. 
So this, this control panel is designed um, to be operated while you're floating somewhere outside this, the International Space Station in a spacesuit. So you have all sorts of very clumsy um, uh, gloves on. They're, they're very big. You don't have a lot of agility. And you will be wearing um, a helmet with um, a gold visor against the radiation. So in, in, on these conditions, you still should be able, while floating there, to control the, this uh, 11 point something meter robot arm outside the space station. Uh, so that's why these switches are so simple, sort of flick on, off, because if mm. with a great big glove, you can't mm. necessarily use anything which requires more fine-tuning. Yeah, so you, you cannot use a, a touch display, you cannot use any fine switches, so we have, we've had to engineer this thing, and it was specifically... It was important that you would actually feel if you throw a switch. So the, the switches are really, they look indeed 60s clumsy uh, type of switches, but um, other ones in the beginning, in the first prototypes, and then you couldn't feel that you would have thrown a switch or not. So it is very, very important to have the feedback, otherwise you'd probably keep trying. Did I now do something or not? And did it work or not? And also the, the switches are protected, so there's bars around them, so you don't accidentally take uh, the wrong one, but also then we had to keep care that, that these bars are not such that you can get stuck with your glove in it and you maybe would not be able to go back inside the space station when you run out of oxygen because you'd still be stuck with one finger in, in one of these uh, bars. So Reverse engineering, effectively, are you? Well, we have to guard against against every possible thing that could go wrong and therefore we, we sometimes had to move back to Stone Age technology. The same thing with the display. Displays. The displays originally we had like um, LEDs which could come on in green, green um, yellow, or um, red, depending on the, the, the status of the, the system. But we had to get rid of the yellow ones because you couldn't see them because of the gold visor. They would be invisible. The, the gold, the yellow, would be reflected by this visor. So there's there's a lot of engineering behind it, even though it looks indeed like oh, what a like shit a museum. <laughs> yes, like a museum piece. Yeah, no, you're yeah. right. Now, the only thing next to it that does look a mm. little bit more current mm. is a joystick. Yeah. What's this bit used for? The joystick is used for the simulator. So we are standing here in front of a very large screen, and uh, if we would close off this room, then it would be pitch dark in here, and the screen would be switched on, and that there would be like a 3D virtual reality simulation of the space station and uh, this uh, joystick which indeed looks way more modern is only used to operate the uh, image in that uh, simulator so in reality you would not have this joystick now the new robotic arm that the european Mm. space agency have built why did the space station need a new one because they've Mm. got you know, the, the Canada one is the, yeah. the, the big one that everybody yeah, knows about. Well, the, the basically, the, the ISS has um, two parts. It has a Russian part and an American part. And the, um, the American part also hosts the Japanese and European, European module. But basically, on the Russian part, there is not yet a uh, robot arm. So the Canadian arm can go, goes on the American half of the station. And then the other half does not yet have one. And there... Um, a new module will be coming at the end of next year and for that purpose it will have also an an airlock where you can bring scientific equipment in and out of the station and for that purpose it needs the robot arm and also it needs it for some of the installation of the new modules on that Russian part. How will the European robotic arm differ from the Canadian one? It's a bit smaller, it's like um, between 11 and 12 metres compared to like 16 it's um, a bit more clever, a bit more automatically operated than the Canadian one. The Canadian one still has, um, at least its initial design, some more operation with joysticks. In the four era, we have either this panel if you operate it from outside or we operate from a laptop when you're from inside. 
But other than that, the, the functions are relatively similar. We have also looked at handing over payloads between one and the other if something had to move from one part of the ISS to another. So I think in functionality, they have probably more commonalities than, than differences, but in the design, it's quite different. And where about on the space station will this panel be connected to? It will be on a, on a tray, which you can also see, uh, see here. There's, I think there's uh, two options. It can be mounted um, um, anywhere on the, on the base point on the outside of the um, Russian segment of the ISS, or it can be located at the end of the robot arm itself. And then you could be like a cherry picker. You could operate and move yourself around on the station. Now, I have to ask, you know, you mentioned yourself mm. that you could control the robotic arm inside using a laptop or mm. outside using this panel, which mm. will be physically attached to mm. the outside of mm. the space station. Why have both? Why not just purely operate it from inside? Because if you've got cameras, you can see everything. What is it about being outside and controlling it using this panel yeah. that, is, that is useful? And the Russians wanted this because we uh, cooperate with the Russians on this. And they wanted it because you would um, still have, in some cases, uh, a better view and a more reliable view on, uh, on the, the task that you would have to execute. And uh, so they, they had the opinion that you can only do so much with cameras. But, um, but to some extent, I agree with you. If, if at all possible to operate from inside, you would do it from inside. Because one of the objectives of using robots is to be more safe and not have to go outside because you would have the robot. Now, apologies to Philippe if I get his name wrong there, which is why we heard him self-identifying himself because I didn't think I'd be able to pronounce his name. But it was Philippe Chonions, ESA's Robotics and Future Projects team leader. Uh, Colin, I mean, it's, it is good news, isn't it, that the space station's now going to be uh, least have its life extended to 2030? Yes, it is, because it's been a, a revolutionary for us in terms of our ability to practice living in space for uh, for a long time. I mean, there are people at school today, in fact, everyone at school today uh, has had somebody in space for every single day of their lives, which is it's a huge change from even when I was a child. You know, going to space was a... Uh, people went, but for someone to be in space every single day of your entire life is a big change. Uh, the flip side of that is we haven't left low Earth orbit since 1972, so it's good that the space station is being extended, but we also need to extend our you know, imagination a bit and maybe build things, as, as is planned, to be fair, things like the lunar, lunar orbital gateway that, that, that NASA and... Ross so Cosmos a space station in deep space rather than a, just a space station around the yeah, Earth. Yeah, a space station... We can station, both, hopefully, can't we? Oh, we can do both. Yeah. yeah. Basically, a space station around the moon, because then you've got things like the ability to control machines on the surface of the moon in real time. Which for the moon, you know, it's only a three-second or well, one-and-a-half-second delay, but that's very much a practice for Mars. You know, can we live in orbit around Mars and control machines in real time on the surface? Well, let's let's pick up on that and look ahead to 2020 in space. I mean, I'm, I just made a list, and I think, actually, to be fair, this was very similar to my list last year, so uh, it says a lot about the way these things tend to slip. But this is my, my list for human space flights. You've got, in theory, this year, 2020, first crewed flight of the Dragon spacecraft, first crewed flight, potentially, of Boeing's Starliner, rival spacecraft, the first passengers on Virgin Galactic's spacecraft, uh, the first flight, maybe, of the SLS, the new... Uh, giant rocket i mean that's because human space flight well do you think in your mind any of that actually happen i think given that number of things that maybe one, 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 one or two i mean virgin galactic in particular has been 
this year, this year, this year for years. Um, but then they did have the first, uh, it wasn't a paying passenger, but they had the first passenger already. So That was Beth Moses. So they, they head in the, in the right direction. And so, I, yeah, some of those will definitely happen. The SpaceX ones, SpaceX always achieve their targets, but not when they say they're going to do them because they are stupidly ambitious targets. So yeah, maybe they'll pull it off. But. Well, I wonder about the Boeing uh, Starliner, you know, the, the alternative one, because it's often under the radar because Boeing is, you know, one of the big manufacturers often doesn't get the uh, the publicity or the self-generated publicity that, that SpaceX does. But that's kind of been a slow and steady project. And I kind of wonder if they actually might do it first. Yeah, they don't have that sort of iconic billionaire like a Bezos or a Musk, which I guess is why they they aren't quite so so well known. But yeah, they could well slip under the radar. But it's is this ability of of private organisations to get things done in a way that I guess bureaucracy tends to tie up uh, public institutions. But yeah, to be fair, these SLS that this giant rocket is actually also being built by Boeing. It's just under a NASA, NASA branding. But even things like the you know, NASA buy a lot of stuff off of SpaceX too. So is it really interesting how this public-private thing is going to go in the next... You know, we're talking about 2020, but I guess, you know, we're talking about the 2020s as the beginning of a new decade. I wonder whether eventually, maybe not this decade, but you know how we're having issues at the moment with Google and Facebook in terms of these you know, massive multinational corporations that are doing really good stuff, but we kind of need to rein in a little bit. I reckon in the decades ahead, we, we might think of SpaceX, Boeing, uh, Blue, uh, Blue Origin in, you know, in a similar way. How do we stop them running riot without stopping them doing the really good stuff we want them to do? Well, that's true because the Starliner, the, the satellites, has upset a lot of astronomers um, purely by not painting them black, for instance, They've ruined, I've seen images being posted on social media where they've ruined astronomical observations because these satellites are so bright. And it's only going to get worse. They've only really scratched the surface with the number they've launched so far. The, what's coming down the line in terms of these, the sheer number of these satellites you know, is going to be a real issue for, for professional astronomers. And I was reading today, actually, I mean, there's, there's not just SpaceX. There's also another constellation. There's OneWeb as a constellation, slightly bigger satellites, different, different purpose. Um, Amazon also talking about having constellation of satellites. So, again, it's exactly the same same type of people. It wouldn't surprise me if Facebook and Google went down. I mean, certainly Google used to do space. Plus you've got Space Force. I feel as though there should be some corny music there. Like, dum, 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 yes. <laughs> that comes back to Dan Dare, actually. Yeah. Very similar, yeah. Well, it, it might be a slippery slope. I mean, it, maybe it's too far to say, but you can imagine that, that if you keep going down that route, do you have a big neon sign on the moon that says Coca-Cola or something? You know, oh, Wouldn't surprise me. I hate to say it. And so where is this line between public and private? exploitation of space and, it, and the trouble we have is the way we make laws at the moment and we legislate for stuff is so slow you know you have to debate things in parliament then you have to pass a bill then you are you advocating dictatorship <laughs> no just a quicker way of, of because you can't keep pace with with this level of of development i mean we have to write things on vellum and the queen has to sign it off and it, you know it takes a long time to get things done and things move quicker than that so if we are going to regulate this stuff in a, in a decent way we need a quicker way of making legislation I would like to know, though, your background. When did you start becoming, you know, a writer wanting to write about space, astronomy and, and things like that? Well, space has always been my thing since I, I don't really remember getting into it. I think I've always been into it since I was a tiny, tiny child. 
and so my plan as a as a kid was to be an astronaut and then uh, as you might expect and then, and then I saw Helen Sharman uh, give a talk she'd been back from space and she kept, my dad took me to, to a talk she gave and it got me even more hooked because I realized that space could be a job rather than just some you know interesting thing so I went to university did astrophysics had an idea of being a, an astronomer you know an, an academic got halfway through my degree and realized what the life of an academic was like <laughs> did not fancy it I thought about being a teacher for a while, but I didn't fancy the the marking and the, the you know the behaviour management. So this seemed a really good compromise: the ability to to spend all my time talking about space and writing about space, and most importantly, learning about space. You know what I do? People say, "Would you like this amount of money to go away and learn about this thing that you really like anyway?" That's, that's quite attractive to me. That's such a great description. That's how I feel, actually, exactly how I feel. Uh, just coming back to the Space 2020, getting back to the, the message, what about space science? You mentioned solar orbiter at the beginning. I mean, we've also got a couple of Mars missions this year, potentially two if the European mission launches on time, so ExoMars and also the, what well, they call it, Mars 2020, the, the NASA mission. Yeah, and what's really good about those is that they are starting to carry instruments that are looking forward to human missions to Mars. So on board one of them, I think it's on the, on the European one, or it could be the other one, um, is an instrument called MOXIE. Its goal is to see if it can, it can extract oxygen from Mars's carbon dioxide atmosphere. You know, on a really small scale, but if they can do it, you might be able to scale that up to give humans an oxygen supply. So we're moving from these robotic missions. Yes, they have planetary science goals, and they're looking for you know, Mars's history. They're looking for water and past signs of life. There's a hat tip towards also, you know, how are we going to sustain people on Mars, which is, which is something that should be coming by the middle of the century. So I'm excited not just for the sort of science results, but for some of the you know, technology testing things that are on board these rovers. Colin Stewart, thank you very much for joining us uh, here at the British Interplanetary Society and your latest book, Rebel Star, published by? Michael Amara Books. Space Boffins is supported by the UK Space Agency and we'll have more on the UK in space next month. Do follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Oh, and say nice things about us on your uh, podcast platform. It'd be really good, though. Uh, (laughs) You know what? Actually, this is the best thing to do. We really don't go like, whatevs. Yeah, okay. Um, (laughs) We do appreciate nice comments, though. Uh, Thank you very much for listening. Oh, who did it? Did what? what? Who did it? Give me, give me the, Where did that come from? Give me a napkin, quick. There's a turtle. I didn't do it. It ain't one of mine. I, I don't think it's one of mine. Uh, but... Mine was a little more sticky than that. The one who God almighty. <laughs> what do you see? Well, that's enough for me.